Well, what a treat that was to have the little kids up here. How many were crying? Oh, don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And Emery's voice was like the cutest voice in the whole world. Oh, my gosh. Um, what, a, what a sweet thing. And we have uh, some of the ladies from the Teen Challenge New Jersey home. Is that right? Here this morning. Yeah. Many of you know uh, in the second row, Huggy and, and Bridget, who've been part of Ren Church for many years. And Bridget's been hanging out in New Jersey for a little bit. And so we're excited to have you guys in the front row, especially. I kind of suggested that. I was like, yeah, just put them in the front. That's, that's where the, that's the good place to be. Well, I had a fun night last night. I just got to tell you a little bit about it. So we've been, uh, as you know, most of you know, we have this other space in Warwick called the Haven Space or the Haven Center. And so we've just been doing a variety of different types of things there. I mean, the range eclectic range of things is just crazy from like fancy dinners with like catering and jazz music and then on Halloween night this church used the space to do this crazy kids event hundreds of kids from the neighborhood came in I always say there was so much sugar from the sugar donuts on the floor you could skate I was skating I was pretending to skate around on the sugar um but we did an art camp in the summer. We do a little C.S. Lewis book club on Thursday afternoons. There's just been such a wide range of different things. Many youth events have happened there, kind of collaborative, like five or six youth groups uh, getting together. And so a lot of the things that, that are happening there, I'm not leading them or directing them. We're just, it's just kind of our space, and we're letting other people do things. So last night there was... Um, there was this uh, event that was a tribute to a guy named Dennis who used to be a pastor and he used to uh, direct this coffee house in Warwick that was kind of famous. It was like really the only coffee house uh, for decades in, in the state of Rhode Island. And so he was famous. He was in this band called uh, the Elijah Band. And Dennis was the leader of the band. He was like friends with, if you know, Chuck Gerard. Uh, who was the lead singer of uh, Lo- the band Love Song. This is going back. Some of you young kids, like in your 20s, you're like, what is he even talking about? Love Song, I never heard of them. You know, this is the Jesus Revolution. This is the 70s and the 80s when God was really moving in that generation and many people came to the Lord. And so uh, this event that happened last night was a tribute to Dennis who passed away. And so the band was this band called Crimson Rain. And they actually had a couple members of the Elijah Band, the original members of Elijah Band, the bass guitarist and the lead guitarist who joined Crimson Rain to play all the songs of Elijah Band. And I just, I texted my wife and said, I am in 1973 right now. <laughs> this is amazing. This is like my dream experience. It, just, it was like a, just this love, this hippie, all these hippies came out of nowhere. And they just started like just hanging out, loving each other. It was like a reunion, like hugging each other. You know, the songs would begin and just some of them would just jump up and start like dancing like it was a, like a club. I was like, this is, this is, there's so much freedom in this room. <laughs> um, it was just spectacular. It was such a fun event. And again, it's not even something that like we're not, directing these things. We're not organizing it, but just, I'm just kind of letting you know, cool things are happening in this haven space that we have in, in Warwick. 
So uh, anyways, I was up really late last night, so if I look a little tired, that's why I didn't get home till after 11, I think it was. But I'm here, and I'm ready to uh, preach the Word of God. It's so fitting that they sung, I didn't know that they were going to sing that song or, or say that verse, but uh, just about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, perfectly fitting, goes right along with this message this morning. Uh, so we are going to um, do just a kind of a short series, two weeks, and um, we're going to look at chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. Nothing says Thanksgiving like the book of Revelation. <clears throat> I don't know why. It was just really strong on my heart to, to do this. I was looking for a two-part series, and, just, and then when I thought about that, I was like, this is it. I need to do this. So the book of Revelation is, I'm gonna, this is going to be a lot of content. So kind of fasten your seatbelts. It was on my heart even to tell you, listening to a sermon takes work. Preparing a sermon takes work, uh, but listening also takes some work. So I'm asking you to uh, really focus, may your focus be focused this morning and really kind of absorb what you can. If you like to write, you know, then jot things down, write things in a, in a notepad on your phone or whatever. But this is a lot of content, but it's important. These are important messages that we're going to give um, today and next Sunday. So the book of Revelation is dated at about 95 AD, the very end of a long first century with thousands of people martyred. I mean, it was intense, that first century of Christian life. The book is penned by the apostle John, but was essentially a message given to him by God in a vision. And John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And part of the vision is Revelation 2 and 3, these letters that were written uh, to the churches of that day. Seven letters, seven churches. Each one had a different letter. Uh, some say that the churches represent ages of Christianity, and perhaps that's true. Different scholars argue about that. But it seems clear that the letters were written to actual churches that existed in 95 A.D., and you hear this phrase repeated throughout the letters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this implies that though Jesus is speaking specific things to each church, the principles, of course, could be applied to any church, anywhere, in any generation. So that includes us. Amen? The seven letters can be found in Revelation 2 and 3. As I said, I'll be covering it in just two weeks, not unpacking every tiny detail. But really what I'm really going after here is the overall portrait of God that the letters reveal in general. Like, what is Christ like toward his church? Uh, what kinds of things does Jesus say? What impresses him? What upsets him? We see a lot just in these two chapters. The letters of Jesus to each of the churches could be likened to job performance reviews. How many have had one of those? Yeah, the worst ones I ever had were Starbucks. I was like, these guys are so serious about coffee. And I never got good reviews, you know, because I was like three minutes late one time and it was just so intense. But 
they are kind of like performance reviews. Jesus highlights what looks good and what areas need improvement. Of course, we all love to hear what we're doing right. I do. Um, but it's hard to hear criticism, right? I don't think any of us like, oh yeah, I've just, I'm so good at that. Like when people bring strong, serious, accurate criticism, I'm just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That feels so good. Now, you know, we kind of think so highly of ourselves and it just, it hurts, it wounds. Um, especially criticism from someone we respect, like Jesus. It's perhaps even harder, right? So we want to believe that, you know, God is perfectly pleased with every aspect of our lives. But if we are going to grow, we have to let the Lord search us and change us. All right, we're going to jump in. Verse 1. <laughs> Sorry, it's a little distracting. Thank you. <laughs> um, so verse 1, we're going to jump right in. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, most of the commentaries I read say that the angel refers to the pastor of each church, but whether it refers to a pastor or an actual angel, I'm not sure if it really matters. God knows. Uh, there's different opinions about it, but it's clear that the letter was for the entire church. In chapter one, the stars and lampstands are defined this way. It says in chapter one, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Verse two, he says this, I know your works. It starts out so good. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, right? This performance review starts out glowing. Jesus highlights several things. You get the idea that this church excels in strong, clear doctrine, and they were an active church. These guys were working. They were doing the work. They were a portrait of patient endurance. So doctrinal integrity, A+. Hard work, A+. Up to this point, it seems like they are the model, the model church. Jesus then turns, though, to point out their deficiency. And this is what kind of ties in with the, what the kids were singing about this morning. He says, verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the first, the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, Ephesus was a very secular city, so most of the Christians there probably had pretty radical conversions out of sinful lifestyles into new birth living. They experienced a strong new convert, kind of honeymoon, right? Honeymoon love for Christ. They experienced supernatural love shed abroad within their hearts that moved them to love God with a fiery affection. 
And of course, this isn't always the case in marriage, but this is many times what happens in marriage relationships as well, right? We call it the honeymoon phase, right? The couple falls in love, and they're just all about each other, and they're just, what's the term, gaga. They're just gaga. They're ridiculous. You know, it's just like so over the top. Who's Teen Challenge? Uh, Zach and Layla. Oh, my gosh. Gaga. You know, they just have their one-year anniversary. They're just still, like, just dreamy, you know, toward each other. It's so, it's so sweet. It's so beautiful. Um, but then marriage relationships can grow cool, right, through time, through difficulties and afflictions and just through all the different things that can happen. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to kind of bring it to a comparison here, there are some marriage relationships that can be, um, they kind of do everything right, right? You know, they, they, they kind of, they're not cheating on one another. They're faithful. They do the things. They do the, they do the dishes. They do the, get the little chores done. They're, you know, they're, they're putting bread on the table. They're uh, doing all the things, cleaning the leaves out of the gutters and doing all the different, all the things, like faithful to do all the works. And yet the love and affection has been taken away or been lost, I should say. So some of us grew up in a faith and have had kind of a more of a gradual growth over the years, right? I know I understand that's the case, but for many of us, there was a point in time, at least, when we fell in love with God. The strong rebuke of Jesus is that the Ephesians had abandoned the love that they had at the first Walking in love is so important to Jesus. I mean, it's really why he made us, right? I mean, let's kind of go there for a minute. He didn't create us just to do stuff, right? To do works, to be faithful to all the little rules about Christianity. Yes, we're supposed to be obedient, but he created us for love, that he would lavish his love upon us and then we would give our love and affection back to him. That's why we're a maid. We're doing that now. We're beginning that now. But in eternity, I mean, that is going to be what it's about forever. It's so important to Jesus. And this is where the evaluation of Jesus is a little different, I think, sometimes from ours, right? We tend to be so impressed with hard work. Don't we? Especially in America, we just brag about how much, oh my gosh, this week I worked 90 hours and we just, we think this, oh my gosh, I did like 25 different church events and we just feel so proud of that and like, oh wow, he's really devoted. Like we are impressed by hard work. And there's, that's another sermon and that's a good thing and Jesus commends them for their hard work. So we're not undermining hard work. But we also tend to be impressed with doctrinal integrity right? Teachers and preachers or Christians who have a really good understanding of the word of God and don't bend it. They just, they're faithful to it. Wow, that's like, if, you do, if you're that, you're like, you're, you've arrived. But that's, Jesus doesn't think like that. Now again, that's really important. We're going to see that through some of his other letters. Doctrinal integrity is very important. But our feeling is, you know, sure, a church could always be a little more loving, right? But it's not that big of a deal. I mean, don't we all get cold at times? We tend to be impressed by the things that 
Jesus is not necessarily impressed by. He's looking for love. He's saying that if you don't get renewed in love, I'm going to kind of pull away. I mean, he says remove the lampstand. What does that mean? I mean, the lampstand is the church. What does that mean? He's going to separate himself from the church. It's kind of a strong warning here. Um, He was saying that hard work and doctrinal purity are commendable, but without love, you are nothing. This is what the Apostle Paul was communicating to the Corinthian church, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, (laughs) right? And if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's pretty extreme, right? You think that's gonna count for something. But have not love, I gain nothing. It's so dramatic, right? We got to have love. I mean, this isn't just like, if you don't have love, you're kind of lacking. If you don't have love, well, you're not the best Christian. No, you gain nothing. You're nothing without the love of God. And by the way, we're not talking about human love. We're not talking about the best human effort to be loving. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God's love manifested in our hearts, drenching our hearts. That is the only thing that really honors God. We must have that. So the way back is to first remember when you were in love. Remember how your heart melted during worship or remember how you thought about the Lord from morning till night or how you do anything for God when the zeal was there, when the love was there, how you cried rivers of tears and prayer because you felt God's love for you, how you held nothing back in sharing Christ with others. How you spent every waking hour, kind of almost lovesick for more of God. You yearned for that nearness with God. And Jesus exhorts the Ephesian church to remember those days and do the works you did at first. What this means practically is spending your spare time differently. You know, when we're in love, we spend our free time with the one we are in love with, right? I look back at my first years of walking with God, and I didn't own a TV. It was before social media. I didn't have any money, really, and didn't shop much. I didn't have many hobbies. I owned no video games. I was not a part of a sports league. It was just Jesus, And let me tell you, it was enough. It was enough. I was feasting on Christ. I never thought, man, you know, I really need to, I really need to buy a TV. I really need, I just didn't even cross my mind. I was so satisfied with the feast of Christ, the word of God, prayer, spending time with brothers and sisters. Our weekends were like jam-packed with just being with God's people. It was rich, but what happens over time? You know, we go through a valley, we go through a tough time. We start picking back up an array of activities in search of pleasure and amusement, and time with God is replaced by lesser things. 
and the love we had at first grows cool or even cold. His exhortation to the Ephesians is urgent. We could even call it an ultimatum. If you choose to remain loveless and love other things more than me, despite your hard work and integrity, then I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. If we find ourselves going through the motions loveless, we need to urgently throw ourselves before God for renewal. Pray until God drenches you afresh with divine love. And you might say, well, it's so hard. What, what, what am I supposed to do exactly? You know, I don't know. I'm trying the things. I mean, I'm, I'm getting up early. I'm having my little, you know, time with in the word and trying to do the, trying to do the thing. I'm here. I'm at church. Isn't that part of like what I'm supposed to be doing? Listen, I'm telling you, we can kind of do those things for years and not be renewed in love. It takes a little, I don't know why this phrase hissy fit is coming to mind, but it takes almost a little bit of like, like a, God, come on. Like, I got I need you. I cannot go through the motions anymore. I'm feeling mechanical. I'm feeling like a clanging cymbal. I'm feeling like I'm doing all the little things that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm the tidy little neat Christian and I'm doing all, the, doing all the things. But God, I pray that you would baptize me with love. There's an intensity to it. There's a ripping open of your heart. Right? I mean, this is Joel. Right? This is Joel chapter two, right? You know, where, where, where uh, you know, God says, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to me with weeping and fasting and mourning. Now, I, some of you are saying, well, I'm not, that's not my personality. <laughs> Pastor Scott's like that. I, just what I, you, you don't have to yell. Like, I'm not saying to yell. I'm saying, get to a place where you just look at your own heart, your own loveless, cold heart, and you say, come on, heart. I'm not accepting this. God, you said I'm supposed to have a fiery heart full of love. And you sort of, I don't know, you turn it back on him and say, God, you got to change me. What do you want me to do? Come, touch me, strengthen me, fill me, flood me. Do the thing in me. Break this hard heart and melt me. Listen, I, I will tell you, from 34 years of walking with Jesus that any time, any season that I have done, I have been cold so many times, never like ice cold, like iceberg kind of thing, but my love has grown cool many, many times through the years. And I'm still doing the things, doing the pre preaching the sermons, doing the thing, counseling people, doing all the leading outreaches, doing all the things, and, but you can get cool and any time that I have just gotten fed up with my stupid cold heart and started wailing before him and crying and aching day and night, I'm telling you, it has never taken very long before God just breaks through and brings fresh love into the inner place of the heart. If he does it for me, he'll do it for you. He's no respecter of persons. He wants to do it. Sometimes we get this feeling like my heart's cold and I guess I'm, I don't know. 
Like, God, this is what God wants me to have. You know, he doesn't want to do anything deeper. Now, don't, that's, that's a deception. He wants to renew the heart. He will do it. Well, then he says, verse six, yet this I have, that, yet this you have, it's another uh, commendation, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And not much is known about these people, but apparently they were in the church and influencing the church in bad ways. Jesus makes it clear that he hates their works. And I think it's important to understand that. Like Hebrews 1 says, Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity. That God does hate things. Sometimes I think we live our Christian lives, we just love everyone. We love God, we love pizza, we love, you know, we just love everything. We just, we just love everything kind of in this equal way. And we're like afraid, it doesn't feel right to hate things. But God hates things and he hated the works of the Nicolaitans. He isn't indifferent about them. He isn't mild in his opinion saying, yeah, well, you know, these guys, they're not really the best Christians no, he was sickened by their works. And he commends the Ephesian Christians for being in agreement. One commentator described the Nicolaitans this way. Uh, they, like all deceivers that come from the body of Christ, claimed, not that they were destroying Christianity, but they were, that they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. Several commentaries emphasized that they were encouraging sexual immorality. And then Jesus gives a promise at the end. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now let's jump to this next uh, church. We're just going to look at um, all the churches, four of them, in the book of, in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. So this next church is called Smyrna. And verse 8 says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is a church that receives nothing negative. This is kind of like the church we want to be, kind of. I mean, they're definitely not going through easy things. I'm not sure if I want that part of it. I want all the commendation, but without the suffering, right? <laughs> this is a church that receives nothing negative in their performance review. Jesus commands and encourages them. They were a persecuted church, slandered. Uh, tribulation is a strong word, and only physical violence against them. The persecution naturally had an economic effect as well. It may have been difficult to get work and to engage in trade because of their identification as Christians. One commentary describes the challenge of Christians to fit in in this time. They put it this way. Emperor worship had begun. Remember, this is 95 AD. This is late in that first century. Emperor worship in the first century had begun a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But toward the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, uh, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. Can you imagine this? It's interesting to note that Polycarp, 
a second century pastor in Smyrna. He was a disciple of John. He was famously martyred and burned at the stake for his Christian faith. You can read all about the details of his life. It's an incredible story, Polycarp. But the Lord actually showed him in advance that he would be burned alive. Now, we can hardly relate, at least in this region of the world, to the intensity of this kind of persecution, right? But let me just say this. Since I've become a Christian in 1989, it wasn't 1973, like the Jesus movement, but I feel like I caught the tail end of the Jesus movement people. They were still around in 1989. But I've seen that it's become harder and harder to fit in. You know, we aren't required by law to burn a pinch of incense to the godhead of our government or whatever, but we are socially pressured to affirm modern views on sexuality and to accept all religions as sort of equally good. And if we don't, well, we're labeled hateful. We absolutely will not get certain jobs. Now, we don't experience physical violence, but if we are vocal with what we believe, we will absolutely be socially ostracized, kicked to the margins, slandered, as being a threat to human flourishing. And I don't, listen, I don't think that we can any longer say that our society is just, you know, they were just reacting to the, you know, the bad examples of Christianity. That's what I used to think. I used to preach this so much, you know. Well, it's just, you know, there's so many hypocrites out there and, you know, like Christians that just, you know, have done such a poor job of uh, showing grace and love uh, to the gay community, for example. And so, you know, I used to think, well, you know, that's just why, so they're, they're fired up and they're angry because of that. But I don't, you know, I probably know, and I'm not exaggerating, I probably know about 100 local pastors from not just Providence, but, you know, throughout Rhode Island. I tend to just be in a lot of different places. I haven't met any of them that I felt hatred from. Like that they were just hating the cult. They were hating the gay community. I just think it's not true. <clears throat> Our society persecutes any Christian who holds to Orthodox Christian doctrine and practices. I love that Jesus says to them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. What an encouragement there. The effects of poverty are not undermined by Jesus. He experienced poverty in his time on earth. Poverty can lead to all kinds of things, right? Malnourishment, health problems. Maybe you can't stay warm in the winter. It means no money to uh, enjoy popular pleasures or amusements, or no modern mode of transportation. It could be just, hi, Rose. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it could mean back issues. It could mean just traveling on foot, any... Any of these things. It could mean an early death, honestly. Poverty is the real deal. Jesus acknowledges their physical poverty. And I 
think it's worth noting that he doesn't rebuke them for being poor. He doesn't promise them material wealth in this lifetime as some preachers do. But he does remind them that they are in another sense rich. They are rich in God's love for them, in God's favor for them. They are rich with treasures stored in heaven. They are rich with the inheritance that they will one day receive. They're rich in community and in family, rich in wisdom and knowledge, filthy rich. All right, verse 10 says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison uh, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I don't know how these letters were unpacked. You know, like, oh, there's a letter from from John received in the Isle of Patmos. They're from Jesus, and here it is. Like, the church is all like, oh, this is exciting. You know, a letter from Jesus. Can you imagine? Be faithful unto death. Tribulation is coming. Just makes me think of how false prophets always tell you exactly what you want to hear. Oh, it's going to be great. Great things are in store. Beautiful, wonderful. You're amazing and amazing things are on the horizon. Like Jesus doesn't do that. He just tells them the truth here. Now, sometimes we imagine that Christian martyrs have no fear at all. We read the stories of the martyrs throughout history and maybe we think that they're kind of like superheroes, right? Um, so spiritual that in the, in the face of persecution, they just, they're just so calm and they're just like, bring it on, bring it on. I don't even care if you take my head off. And maybe some of them were like that, I don't know. But I think we're human. And even the greatest saints are human. And there's this experience that when humans are faced with danger, right, the feeling of fight or flight um, in the heart of a saint will probably beat a lot faster when the sword is near. So we need encouragement, and Jesus gives it to them here. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And this is a common word that God gives to all kinds of Christians in all different situations. He doesn't promise to remove the suffering, but to, he promises to give them assurance in it. He will be with them. Often God says in the word, do not fear. And then what's the next thing he says? I am with you, right? God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. Uh, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? I mean, imagine if you were facing the most dangerous, terrifying, scary situation, or you, you had to, you were just whatever, you were a missionary overseas, and you really were taken, imprisoned, and maybe beaten, and you're, they're just going to kill you the next day. And what would be the, the one thing you would want to hear? I mean, I guess the one thing would be like, I will deliver you and bring you home safely. <laughs> okay, that would be the that would be the our favorite you know word from Jesus. But if we're not going to get that, we would want to hear, "I will be with you in it." Whew. Makes all the difference. So we do not suffer the way other people suffer because we have a close relationship with God. Then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will, be, will not be hurt by the second death. 
And that's, you can read about that in Revelation 20. All right, Pergamum, let's hit these last two churches, right? And finish up. So verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the Christians in Pergamum experienced a persecution that got physical. Antipas, who Jesus calls my faithful witness, was killed perhaps as a warning to others who would insist on being vocal about their faith. But despite seeing Antipas killed, the Christians in Pergamum just held fast in the name of Jesus. Uh, This implies they risked their lives for the gospel, right? You get the idea that they were pressed at times, possibly threatened with death to deny the faith, but they would not. And they stood firm despite the potential consequence of death. And Jesus sees it and lets them know he is impressed. But excelling in one area does not compensate for deficiencies in another Right? Even the most admirable virtues cannot void out sin. It's like a wedding dress that is 90% perfect and beautiful and white, and 10% of it is ripped and torn and just grease stained. No, Jesus wants a bride without spot and without wrinkle. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Here he goes into it. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. There's so much I want to say right in between there. Like we think, oh, it's just all about love. You know, as long as you love God, just love people. You know, that's all I care about. All this theology stuff, doctrinal stuff, it's just so confusing. Everybody's arguing about it. It doesn't really matter. Listen, theology matters. It matters a lot how you think. Doctrine matters. And we're going to see it right here. There are some of you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And you also have some who hold the teaching of the, there it is again, the Nicolaitans. So you can read the entire story of Balaam in the Old Testament it's mentioned uh, three times in the New Testament, I think five times in the Old Testament. It's sort of a big story that we get. Um, it's kind of a lesson for us. But essentially, Balaam taught things that caused God's people to practice immorality and idolatry. He wasn't an outsider. He was an insider. Remember Jesus saying, talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. He's talking about people who pose as Christian teachers or authors and have secretly kind of slipped in to the church scene and teach things that cause people to stumble. This was a problem in 95 AD. It was actually a problem all through the first century. And it's been a problem for 2,000 years and it's definitely a problem today. The great mark of a false teacher is that he or she cleverly teaches in a way that causes people to sin. In other words, they somehow convince people that certain sins are not sins or that practicing sin isn't really that big of a deal. They strengthen the hands 
of sinners. They do not turn people away from sin. Malachi puts it this way. He describes the godly teacher like this. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many away from iniquity. And he says the false teacher is described this way. You have turned aside from the way and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant. The Christians in Pergamum were tolerating this bad teaching in their midst. They lacked discernment. Now, it's easy for us to judge them, right? But discerning is a challenge. The false teachers who are effective, listen, are often beautiful, handsome, wealthy, successful, charismatic, winsome, charming, funny, energetic, confident, just smart. And most of what they say is biblically accurate. But their teaching causes people to stumble into certain sins. And it's usually the sins that they personally love, which is what makes them so convincing. And if we don't think there are Balaams in 2023 in America who teach people in the church to sin, then we are very ignorant. You know, I wonder what would happen if Jesus went to a local bookstore, a local Christian bookstore, and ripped off of the shelf every book that misrepresented him. Imagine the mess that would be. There would be more books on the floor than would remain on the shelf. I am convinced of that. We cannot afford to be lacking in discernment, which, by the way, this is part of the reason, if I can just promote the idea of church, this is part of the reason why we need each other. Because alone, we are just going to get off track. Oh, you think, no, I'm smart. I really know the Bible. No, we will get off track. I don't care how smart you are. You will get way off track if you try to do this thing alone. We need each other. We need elders. We need people above us. We need mentors. We need people who are friends who will speak into our lives and challenge us. We all need, I need that as much as anybody in this room. That's what sharpens our discernment. Well, he says in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. Who's them? These teachers. I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth. The call is to change your mind. Stop tolerating false teaching. Thinking that, you know, whatever. You want to be nice and gracious. That's a good thing to be. But if someone was feeding your child poison, you would not tolerate that. It's no different. We need to watch out for each other. Develop discernment. Know the word of God. Know for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Do not be deceived by clever thinking. Don't be bamboozled by gifted speakers and authors. Always do this when you're listening or reading a book or listening to a teaching. Strip it down. Strip it down of all the God-given beauty and talent and charm and intellectual, just uh, impressiveness. 
weigh the content. What is this teacher really teaching? Is it biblical? How does this teaching encourage me to live? And these are strong words. God is saying in so many words, I'm not going to stand by and do nothing when these false teachers are causing my beloved children to sin. I will fight them and beat them down with the words of my mouth. That could refer to God speaking directly to false teachers and overwhelming them maybe with conviction. More likely it would be maybe prophets holding them accountable or publicly exposing their false teaching. Verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's a fun thing to, to study, by the way, the white stone. All right, let's, but I only have four minutes left, which I'm not going to do this in four minutes. I'm just letting you know. Uh, but Thyatira, we're going to deal with this last church right now. I'll try to go quick. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your, I love this, that your latter works exceed the first. This church has some really nice qualities that Jesus points out. But again, it's possible to have good qualities and bad qualities as a Christian, right? But isn't that, I don't want that. Do you want that? I don't, that sounds terrible. You know, we want to live the kind of Christian life that's godly through and through, right? A life that Jesus has nothing negative to say about in the performance review. I don't want to hear Jesus say to me, Scott, I see your hard work as a pastor, your generosity, your patience. I notice your strong faith, and your diligence in the things of God. However, oh, it's like a record scratch, right? However, nevertheless, but, no, what, but what? I mean, I suppose it's better right than an all negative review, but it's still lame. I don't want that. We don't want that as a church, right? So this is how the performance review turns for these Christians in Pergamum. Verse 20, uh, here it is. But, there's the big but right there. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Again, she's in the church. This isn't somebody outside the church. Somebody within, spiritual individual within. And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The woman's name probably wasn't actually Jezebel. Maybe it was, I don't know. But it's, it's probably more of a, you know, how we call someone, oh, the guy's like a Hitler. Or we just, you know, take some, whatever, horrible person. And here's a little context from a commentary that I thought was helpful. Because of the strong trade guilds in Thyatira, the sexual immorality and the eating of things sacrificed to idols was probably connected with the mandatory social occasions of the guilds. Perhaps a Christian was invited to the monthly meeting of the goldsmith's guild. And the meeting was held at the temple of Apollo. 
Jezebel would allow or encourage a man to go, perhaps even using a prophetic word. And when the man went, he fell into immorality and idolatry. The draw to the guilds and their meetings was powerful. No merchant or trader could hope to prosper or make money unless he was a member of his trade guild. Nonetheless, Christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure. One ancient Christian named Tertullian wrote about Christians who made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry. You know, a painter might find uh, work in pagan temples or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god and they would justify it by saying, well, you know, this is my living and I must live. And Tertullian replied, must you live? End quote. So here it is again, a teacher teaching things that cause God's people to engage in sexual immorality. Consider how many Christian speakers and authors and pastors today, 2023, are cleverly and forcefully, we're not talking about the culture, I'm not talking about Hollywood and how every show now has what, you know, we're talking about within the Christian movement cleverly and forcefully teaching God's people that it is okay to do a great many things. For example, live with each other before marriage. It's okay to engage in sexual activity before marriage. It's okay to leave your spouse if you're not in love anymore. It's okay to practice homosexuality. It's okay to change your gender if you don't like the one you were born with. It's okay to engage in self pleasure. It's okay to use pornography and so on and so forth. Listen, we must be discerning of the modern day Jezebels that are trying to make us stumble. Mm -hmm. The thing about Jezebel teachers is that the world will love them (laughs) and they will be very popular amongst the nominal Christians who want to modernize the gospel to fit into society. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, we're almost done here. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. God is so merciful, isn't he? But she, Jezebel, refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Listen to the severity of this judgment. Again, we just, we can just, the way sometimes we, well, I don't know, it's different churches and yeah, we don't really agree with them. They just have different opinions about some things and the theology, I don't really agree totally with them, you know, but we're just so loose and light about, but this is like, think about this. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Again, God is giving time I feel like we're in that right now as a generation. God is seeing the confusion, seeing the complexity, seeing the Jezebel spirit and the, and the false teachings that, that fill the pulpits in America. And he is giving time in his mercy. But he says, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. What can fool us into thinking that maybe God is okay 
or not too bothered by Jezebel teaching is that he gives people time to repent, right? Ecclesiastes says, this is uh, Solomon actually, because judgment is not executed speedily, the sons of men continue to do evil. The silence of God, the delay of God in dealing with false teachers makes us think that ah, maybe they're okay. Maybe they're not so bad. I mean, some false teachers live long lives, right? They live very wealthy. But there comes a point when the cup of iniquity overflows and judgment is unleashed. For some, it may be in this life, and for others, it may be in the next life. But the time will come. God gives false teachers time to repent because God is so merciful. He doesn't want anybody to perish. Even the most sinister false teacher or deceived person who's like really causing damage in the body of Christ, God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God gives time. God wants to redeem. That's his heart. But we need to understand that those who insist on misrepresenting Christ and refusing the Holy Spirit's dealing with them will suffer fierce and terrifying judgments. I mean, imagine God saying to you, I will cast you onto a sickbed and I will throw you into great tribulation unless you repent of your works and I will strike your children dead. Can you imagine hearing that? If we ever hear that, you know what we should do? Repent, like immediately. But people don't. All Christians, and especially public teachers who lead God's children to sin, will be judged. I mean, I've studied the word enough where I am more terrified about being a public teacher that deceives people a Christian teacher that deceives people, I think the judgment is more severe for that than if I had never even known God. Sometimes God will make his judgment very public and will cause a person's sins to be exposed widely, right? The whole Christian and non-Christian world broadcasts the sins of the individual. And God does this so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. I mean, think about the public exposure of sin and how it strikes fear in us. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Think about King David and his sin with Bathsheba or even all the sins of King Solomon. Think about Jim Baker. Think about the more recent Carl Lenz and his sad story or Ravi Zacharias. These things could have been easily dealt with kind of quietly, you know, to not bring. Sometimes God just pulls the rug out from under a thing and just shines the spotlight on wickedness in his church. Why? It puts the fear of God, or at least should put the fear of God in every single one of us. May we tremble before the fiery eyes of him who sees all, and may we never condone or tolerate or undermine Christian teaching that causes people to sin. Don't be deceived. How can you sharpen your discernment? Stay in the word. Stay in the church. 
have deep companionships with godly men and women, with people who are older. Even if you're 50, find people who are older than you who have discernment. Find the people who know God. Be very selective with the books that you read. I mean, sometimes I'm kind of like, I, I do read books that are written, like modern day books, because they tend to be more relevant sometimes, right? You know, there's kind of right where we're at, but there's always a little part of me that like, I, all right, this is a good book, but, and this guy is doing good so far, but is he going to end well? There's a little part of me that maybe is cynical. I don't know. But it's safe to read the men and women throughout history who we know ended well and were faithful in their generations. Be companions with those writings. Uh, Be selective with what you read. Again, don't be deceived by... I mean, I tend to be, I'm, I'm a word person. I like, to, I like to write, I like to, I mean, that's kind of what I do, right? I write stuff, and, and then sometimes I send out the writings or just speak the things that I write. That's kind of what I do. So I'm, I love to, uh, I love words. And so somebody who really crafts words in a beautiful way, in an eloquent way, man, it just gets to me. If I'm going to be deceived, it's going to be by somebody that can use words 10 times better than I can. And they're out there. But I can just be immediately intoxicated by like, oh my gosh, this is so good. You know, because it's just so beautiful and so well articulated and they just put it together so, so well. I'm just like, wow, this must be true. But no, I can't. I can't think like that. We have to strip it down and weigh it. Whatever book you're reading, hold in one hand, right? But hold the scriptures in your other hand. If all you do is read books and you never read scripture, you're going to be deceived. Because you're, you're just, you're not beyond deception. You're not. Neither am I. Like, we think, people are very convincing. You have to, what, you know why scripture is so important? Because it gives you the mind of God. Everything in scripture is coming from, it's like God's, perspective. It's wisdom. Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Whatever topic or subject you want to think about or talk about, it's, you know, talk about other religions. Okay, see it from God's perspective. And it it changes you and sharpens your discernment. Stay in the word. Amen. You guys, like really quiet in here today. Um, Let's pray. Father, we do not want to hear good things spoken over our lives with a big, fat, nevertheless, I hold this against you. Lord, may it not be so in any of us in this church. We want to love you. We want to honor you. We want to be through and through men and women who are godly. Lord, help us not to be deceived by the clever deceptions of this generation. Help us to have the courage to call things what they are. Help us to see the true colors of things. Help us to stand firm. 
And most of all, Lord, I pray that you would renew our hearts in love. That if we're going to excel at any one thing, it would be loving you. That we would be filled with the love of God. Drenched, saturated with the love of God. So that we can love you well. May you look down at Renaissance Church and say, oh, how they love me and honor me. Lord, may that be what you see when you look down at Renaissance Church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening.